Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Combinate Podcast. This episode is called Going Wide with Nidra Heckman. Nidra is the Director of Regulatory Affairs Strategy CMC for Combo Products at Takeda. Uh, she's a fellow of RAPS, has a master's and PhD in public health. Nidra has expertise that varies widely in terms of, say, product modalities. We talk about how she got that. That's why the episode is called Going Wide. It was it was sort of deliberate. She's worked at a bunch of different companies, 3M, Baxter, GSK, Takeda, Shire, and Baxalta, to name a few. In this episode, Nidra also walks through some of the challenges in developing global regulatory strategies for combo products. With her background in public health, she also explains how those differences in the regulatory strategy could carry over to patients and payers and adoption of products. She talks about how she reads the room differently and some of the talks that she's given in the past. I hope you enjoy this episode with Nidra. I really enjoy talking to her. You're listening to another impactful episode of the Combinate Podcast, the show where we drive for quality in everything, because quality is everything. I'm your host, Subi Sade. I've been working on medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and combination products for the last 10 years, and my goal is to understand. Each week, I sit down with leaders to understand and bring together medtech and biotech in order to examine the roadblocks in development and access we face and bring to light concepts and tools from our industry and others to help address those. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Can, can you actually say what it's called? I don't remember exactly what it was called. It's called Rethinking, Showing Up, and Reading the Room. Yeah. And so you you talk about reading the room. You talk about kind of like the the way that you read the room differently. Sure. I started off the talk with a story when I was three, and I was outside playing in the the mud of the flower beds next to the house my family and I shared when, in Los Angeles, California. And I, I put mud on my arms. I, I thought it was, you know, a great thing to do. And I went in to show my mother saying, look, mom, I look just like you because I have albinism and it affects my eyes and my skin. So I'm very fair skinned, including also the retinas of my eyes don't have a lot of melanin. So as I showed my mother, my arms being so proud, you know, having some color of the mud on my arms, she said, I'm beautiful as I am without that mud. And I don't have to look like her or anyone because I am beautiful just the way I am. And then she took me over to the sink and started gently washing off the mud. But because of the eye, the, the, the vision, visual acuity differences of an eye that has less pigment in the retina and also structural development that needs melanin in order for it to be proper the nerves and muscles. Because of that, I don't read the room by, by seeing subtle facial expressions. You know, a lot of times in corporate America, we're looking at, you know, the most, let's say, senior by title person in the room. And we're looking for, are they, do they have an approval face or are they frustrated? Are they, is this not the time to speak up? Well, I'm not going to notice those subtleties like a knitted brow or any other subtleties of facial expression because of the visual acuity mm. issue. 
So I need to read the room differently. How, so how do you read the room? So I read the room by listening to what people say, how they form their words, what, wor what words they decide to use. Also taking into consideration that for some people in that room, they might not have English as their first language. They might have, even if they're quite fluent in the English language, they might have cultural, that the cultural background might mean that that the words that they decide to use, I have to take that into consideration. They might be different than someone who is native and of this culture in the United States. So I take into consideration all of that, all of those things. And, you know, we use reading the room to decide whether we should speak up or not. I use how people structure their words and the words they decide to use, taking into consideration their their background you know what i know of their background i don't know everyone in the room but what i can glean i also look at things that i can see like for example uh what colors are they wearing if any what type of garments do they choose to adorn themselves with as a way of getting to know something about that person some information so things that are on more of a macro scale or things that I can glean with other senses than my eyes are what I use to read the room. Do you do you find that <clears throat> it makes you more more or less timid? Because I I guess the, the 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 thought that's going through my head is it if if you're not having to pay attention to every little minute micro expression that everybody else is expressing, you may only be doing you. That's exactly what it is. Is that it makes me less timid because I'm not constrained by facial expressions that might not necessarily reflect everything a person is feeling, especially if their words, the word choice seems to, you know, would maybe contradict that. So if you're listening to words versus watching facial expressions, you might pick up different cues, especially again, taking into consideration culture. And maybe across cultures, there are variations in facial expressions. Um, so I, I think it makes me less timid. But I will tell you this, and I, I use it as a joke, but I do believe it's true. I ask myself four questions before I decide whether or not to speak up about something, because maybe the words are telling me, eh, you know, this might be a little sensitive, mm. but it might need to be said, right, or brought up. I, I ask myself the questions. Is it, is my resume updated? <laughs> Are my bills paid? I also ask myself, is it immoral or is it illegal? Right? So I, I decided long ago that for sure, you know, I was going to weigh the moral and, and legal questions. I mean, that's my quality, you know, inculcation to always make sure that those are there as a protection for my employer, right? And just the way that I, I just decided to live life. But when it comes to the resume updated and bills paid, I decided I should probably make sure that those are in place too, you know, because there might be consequences to speaking up, even if it needs to be said. Mm. So far, I haven't suffered those consequences, though. Mm. There's a there's a concept in my tradition that if you if you can't speak out against something, then at least speak out against it in your heart that essentially, yes. you know, you don't have to be okay with it. And, you know, if you can't change it, then just at least just be not okay with it. 
you know? And yes. so essentially if you go through the list and one of them is, is stopping you, then at least know it's not okay. And you know, that in, in, in some ways that may kind of live on. And I think, um, anyways, okay. So you, you, in, in your talk, you, you talk about washing off the mud too. Can you talk about that? So in my talk, I wanted to point out that, that peers, we as peers, no matter what level we are, we're going to have peers, I suppose, except if we're the CEO. But as far as peers go, we have a lot of power. And sometimes I think that peers don't realize the power that they have to influence for better or for worse life, career trajectory, development opportunities. We don't, we don't understand the power we have to influence that. And I was appealing to peers to recognize this and to, to understand that we have the power to help people actually be themselves, bring themselves to work. Their ideas, creativity, don't sort of, you know, don't forget that we have power to help people to bring these things forward because these ideas and and style they're important for how we solve challenging very complex opportunities we have today i, I just think of the things going on around us climate change i mean that's going to take a lot of unique ways of thinking a lot of unique style and creativity to to begin to put in place solutions to climate change, for example. And there are other uh, similar challenges and opportunities that if actually the standard way of thinking and being and the standard structure could solve those, they would have already been solved, but they are lingering. And those are the things that those lingering aspects of, of life on a global scale, those are the things that we need. This uniqueness of thought creativity, ideas, innovation, style, to begin to, to get our hands around those. So I wanted to encourage peers to recognize the power they have to really help their peers to be who they are and bring these innovation, innovative ideas to the workplace just by being themselves, just by having their style there. And peers influence management. You know, if you go complain to somebody's boss, this person's not doing this or that, that boss is going to listen. So they are influenced. If you go and say, oh, this person's great, you know, it's they should be given this opportunity. They're just such a perfect fit. Then that's going to influence the manager. So I wasn't really talking to managers. I was talking to peers. Yeah, I always think about my, you know, there's a there's a concept I learned years ago about like understanding what are your what are your personal roles and responsibilities. And some of that is like, what are my responsibilities as a son? What are my responsibilities as a so on so forth? We all have different roles that we take in our lives. And it wasn't until a few years back, I don't remember how many years back, I have this like habit, you know, the seven habits of um highly effective people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one of them is sharpen the ax or whatever it is, which is constantly ask for feedback. And I've, I've made it as soon as I read that, I make it a habit, like con all the time. You have feedback, you have feedback. And most of the time it's no. And so I, I had kind of annoyed my boss enough. It was like, I asked him for feedback once every two weeks to a month. 
And he was just like, no, keep doing what you're doing. And then one day, it's like, you know, Subi, how you're always asking for feedback? I'm like, yeah, he got, well, I got some for you. And so I sat down with him and he said that a person was out on leave and I was, I took on a project and as soon as they came back, I just gave it back to him. And it was a situation of, well, that's fine, but that's not really teamwork. If it's like, you know, 8 a.m. on Monday, you give it back to them instead of saying like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And and so from, from that point on, I really made it a point to think, well, the most important people for me are my peers. They're my number one customer. And I think a lot of times, especially if you're on projects, you may think that your project teams are the most important, but I think it's your contemporaries. And so I've tried to make it a point to be like a really good, you know, teammate to my to my direct team and then the the, the people that I work with. But the other thing that you, you just talked about was thanking people, because I think a lot of times, um, especially in our industry, right, like there's so many talented people that we get lost in the sauce and think that this is just how the world is, right? And so we're, we're, we have sort of a bias because out of, what's the word? We're desensitized to the fact that we're surrounded by very talented, competent people, I think. And so I try to make it a point to, to thank those when they do the job because the job is hard usually. But what, I mean, what else, what else do you think you can do as a peer? Is it just a making it more of a, a comfortable culture or is it, you know, listening empathetically? What, what? actions can you take as a peer to wipe the mud off people? Well, one thing that I was thinking about that's just a thing that could be done, right, is that oftentimes our interaction with our peers, and and particularly since the pandemic, but I want to say really in some, some functions, it's been that way for a long time. You're really interacting with people who are nowhere near you physically. So mm. your interaction is maybe a one hour meeting every week. And so things that occur in that meeting, even a one off can be something that makes the difference between this person's okay, or I've got a complaint. And sometimes that can be a misunderstanding. But if all you know about a person is a one hour meeting every week for a year, you're asked to give peer feedback for the purpose of something that lasts in the record of that employee. Mm. It's a good thing to know something about that person more than the interaction. And especially because feedback can be something that you were having a great day, your peer said something just amazing or supportive or whatever it was that, that was needed. And so that person is really great. On the other hand, the peer could be having a struggle, whether it's a struggle because we all have, what do you call it? I think it's called cognitive diversity, right? We all have how, how long it takes us to process information before we can respond. We all have also sort of cultural and discussions when we role play and cultural is a, is a sometimes stems from cultural, um, background in terms of speaking up in meetings, things like that. Well, those things can be perceived as, as negative. Oh, this person never speaks during meetings or it takes them, you know, forever to respond to the topic or they responded when we had already covered that topic. And so they just seem like, you know, not that great a person. And, and that's all we know, right? 
So we comment on that. So the practical thing that I thought could be done is whenever a request for peer feedback is, is sent out, there could be maybe a PowerPoint slide where people can voluntarily fill out something about themselves that is not what you could pick up in a weekly meeting. Maybe their accomplishments on other teams or other programs than the one that the peer, let's say the specific peer being asked for feedback sits on. Or information about what does that person want to do next? What is their interest? And some suggestions for how the feedback could be directed towards helping the person get to that next thing. Not everybody wants a promotion next. Some people want an experience next. Maybe a, you know, sort of a side project or something, a short stint in another function while they're still in their own function. But that's something that you're not going to pick up in a meeting, what somebody wants to do next. Because I find that if people don't have a grounding for providing peer feedback and understanding who they're providing feedback on, it's really hard for them to suggest something that's really beneficial and constructive about a person that really helps them and their manager get them to what is next, or even identify specifics about development needs. Yeah. Un- understand who you're giving feedback to. Yeah. I think because otherwise, I mean, for, for it to be constructive, it's like you said, is am, am I, am I building the person or am I trolling, you know? And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's super, that's super helpful. I want to talk about combo products. Can we, can we go to that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so you started your career as many people have, right? Because in 2013 is when the FDA first issued the regulation on combo products. So many people have started their career prior to, prior to that. I'm wondering what, what was your experience like going through that? Like you, you started out in, I think a more pharma space, then you moved into some devices with, with biosurgery. And then now you're kind of like hard combo products. What was, what was that trajectory like? Well, it was lots of fun and very diverse. And I I started off in a world where you basically, if you had a drug, it followed those regs. If you had a biologic, it followed those regs and a device likewise followed the device regs and things were standalone. And was it was something where I made the goal. I had already made the goal a while back that I wanted to experience as many of the areas that FDA regulates as possible. So I'm fortunate ah. to have, yes, to have all three as their separate uh, sort of work streams, if you will, and their own independent regulatory frameworks. And I think, you know, after after the FDA, after the FDA issued the definitions of combination products, you know, it really depends on the business model of the company. Some players that I had continued with this sort of standalone pathway. If they had biologics or drugs and devices, they they did. And what they would do is qualify the device for use with the drug or biologic. And then and promotional materials have those approved to show that, you know, here are some devices we suggest you could use with your drug or biologic. So we're talking really about 2015 or so for me and having that particular business model. So here's where regulatory affairs and business 
interrelate one area is is how do you want to showcase your products on the market then i transitioned to employers who more or less viewed as a business model why don't we just use fda's definitions of combination products and most of the time they're going to be regulated as a drug so that they would go into the the drug filing or biologic filing and they would either be uh, cross-labeled or co-packaged or you know depending on the the company they might make auto injectors pre-filled syringes pre-filled cartridges others don't have those maybe they use pumps instead and, and IV bags, which are differently regulated than an auto injector. But having really exposure to all these different ways of getting a drug or biologic into the body using a device. So I would say, but my my journey into combination products as regulated as a drug really began in 2016. And it's it's only picked up steam since then. And I'll just add one more thing. There's only one company I worked for where actually we had a drug device combination product that was regulated as a device. So still, yeah. uh, you know, use the device standalone pathway. Device-led. PMA, yeah. Cool. Device-led, yes. What 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 challenges are you seeing now from a regulatory point of view? I know you're kind of, you're, you're a reps fellow and we'll talk about that, but what, what issues are you seeing in terms of filings? I think the challenge is when you're, when you really want your product in global markets, mm-hmm. in these years, many countries have not really adapted or adopted FDA's definition of combination products in its entirety, right? They they haven't necessarily gone with a regulatory framework that for example, defines a cross-labeled combination product, not as the FDA has. So, and the difference is if you have a cross-labeled combination product, it just means you have one application. You still have to describe the device and the drug, yes, or biologic. But in other countries, there's still, if it's a device, it goes the device route for one application. And then if it's a drug or biologic, it goes that route in a separate application. So Uh, I think the challenge is how do you make a regulatory strategy for the definition of a combination product in the United States and then make that work in other geographies? How do you do it? Well, I I think, I I think, and this is a quote from, from the head of regulatory where I currently work. It was a great one. You know, it was, you know, basically, in some ways, you have to negotiate with the regulators to get to yes. And so if there isn't a regulatory framework, but at the same time, there's nothing that says you cannot use FDA's definition, let's say, of a cross-labeled or co-packaged combination product, then maybe it's a matter of talking with the regulators and saying, for these reasons, We'd like to present the product in this way, that the drug and the device would be exclusively used together for the purpose of delivering the drug mm-hmm. uh, or administering the drug. And so what can we do to negotiate? It might not be a single application that we're looking to negotiate. It's rather the use of the drug and the device with each other, right? And that cross label capacity 
versus that the device gets its license, the drug gets its license. And then after that, you figure out a way to have the for the pharmacy formularies put them together. This would be something that could potentially be negotiated with with the health authorities. There's a there's a lot of work <clears throat> being done to try to harmonize some of those definitions. It's like yes. uh, I, I think a lot of companies are um, say speaking loudly about that this being kind of a difficult framework to work under where you have certain authorities saying this is how we define it Europe doing it a different way certain elements certain parts of Asia defining it a different way I really like what you said about you having sort of a career mission to try to go wide in terms of the application of regulatory affairs why was that trying to go wide in the in the like the say modalities you know you said you wanted to do drug you wanted to do yes. device you wanted to do combo products what yes. what inspired that Right. You know, it's a natural curiosity, I think, that I just have as the basis for who I am. I am interested in medicines, you know, and and devices as well. So FDA regulated products are for the betterment of mankind, the health of mankind. And I didn't want to limit myself to just one aspect because Yes, you know, there are devices, if you focus exclusively on devices, like they're developing an artificial kidney, right? And we have artificial hips and knees and, and things like that, some, some tissues that are regulated as devices. But there are things also that affect the metabolism, drugs and biologics. And I, I just, I, I couldn't see limiting myself to understanding just one or the other. It's just a natural curiosity is what I would say that made me want to, want to go broad and wide in terms of FDA regulated industry. How, how did you accomplish it? Because I mean, you, 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 we were talking before the, 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 before we started recording and you talked about taking on a stint as a medical writer in a different modality. And it seems like <clears throat> you worked pretty hard to try to, it wasn't passive, say, trying to get to that diversity and experience. How did you approach it? Right. I was very intentional with that goal. Intentional, but not really having an idea of what order I'd do things in. Sorry, if I can, if I can add a follow-on question. Yes. I think this is my experience could totally be wrong. A lot of times people try to back narrate and say, my career, I was doing this and I was doing that. And it's like, well, it seems more random and now you're just tying it up. I guess with with you and as we were talking before the show started, it it seems like you were pretty deliberate, like you said, that this is the, how you wanted the story to unfold in some ways. Right, I set that goal, and I was deliberate about achieving the goal with actually no idea <laughs> about how I would do it. You know, and the thing is, and I've used this terminology too, walking into the fog. A lot of times, uh, and I think it ties very nicely with that. They say. Uh, regulatory affairs people always respond with it depends right the, the things that are shades of gray it's like walking into the fog you don't know how they're going to turn out you just have a goal and you you walk into the unknown and then look for where there's a possibility for success and then you try and sometimes you will have success and other times not so I had the opportunity to go into regulatory affairs way back when, now I went into devices, 
and then like this is in the 90s came out and was out of regulatory affairs for a long time after that didn't come back until 2000s so i in between that i said well you know i can make a segue from devices regulatory affairs over back over into in vitro diagnostics but it's r and d okay i'll do that for a little while and then see what happens always keeping my goal in mind but i also needed a job so yeah. And these days, you know, you worked on IVDRs. So you, worked in, you worked on IVDs. I did for for a short while, IVD development. Cool. And, and then I saw an opportunity to go into pharmaceuticals quality. And I said, well, there's another type of product that's regulated by FDA. It's not regulatory affairs. That's OK. It's quality. And I wanted to do quality. Got into, into quality. Loved it got into a space where my managers, uh, when I was working in quality, gave me space to experience so much in terms of how you develop a product, commercialize a product, life cycle a product, even decommission a product, all in terms of the manufacturing, which serves even today from my experience with module three, right? Even the devices themselves, you know, depending, they can fit into module three, into the 3TP, right, or 3-2-R. But it, it really serves as a as a background for, for that now in my life. Then I was able to segue over into devices. So I got the quality position because I worked in a lab. You know, I was, I was in the lab for a long while, and they said, well, you know, we have a lab, so you start there. <laughs> so I did. And then when I got back into regulatory affairs, which was devices, only devices for the most part, it was because the hiring manager liked my leadership attributes. This particular employer had six leadership attributes, and I scored high on those leadership attributes. And his philosophy was, well, I need a regulatory leader, so I will hire based on the leadership attributes, and I will train the regulatory well, I was so excited about getting back into regulatory after that long absence and after writing on my five-year plan to go back into regulatory, I just did everything I could to come up to speed quickly in regulatory, immerse myself in wraps. I was already immersed in ASQ for, for quality uh, when I joined quality. And so I've just been able to, by taking opportunities, I didn't get every move that I wanted, lateral or a promotion or other job. But I got enough to, over time, experience a variety of FDA-regulated products under a variety of functions, like quality, R&D, regulatory. And with the medical writing, I call that as close as I could probably get right now anyways, to clinical writing, clinical trial protocols, and other regulatory documents that are clinical in nature. That's so cool. <clears throat> I think having having sort of a mission like that, where you're not so focused on how you get there, but you you know the direction that you want to go. And so, I'm going to go this way. Nope, blocked. All right, there's another way. You know, yes. maybe a little bit longer. That's that's awesome. Now, as far as wraps goes, I mean, it sounds from what you said like it. I mean, how long have you been working with RAPS? So I joined RAPS. Oh, you know, I had to put this on the application for the RAPS fellow. I think I joined in 2007. 
okay. The end of the year. Because I've been doing the dual certificate program yeah. in, in medical device and pharma. I personally am, I've, I've been trying to broaden my horizons. Okay. I love quality. Love it. Like you give me a book on quality. I'll just sit there like super happy to read it. Regulatory affairs. My, my qualm with it is, you know, sometimes it's more academic. I feel this is my, like I said, my, my personal perception. And I was invited to start to think differently about it by a mentor. And I've been really trying. And so I've been working, this is like my, my mission has shifted a little bit and has expanded to include learning regulatory. And so I, like I said, I've been doing the reps course. I've been, you know, I'm reading EUMDR. I printed it out. That's and, great. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm giving it a fair <laughs> shake is the point. I'm wondering as, as some, because you're, you're pretty technical, right? You're a scientist, you, you have your, you, you did public health too. What about regulatory attracted you? Because I think it, it's like an acquired taste. I agree. And yeah. what really attracted me. And I'm starting me. to like it, by the way. I really am. I'm starting <laughs> yeah. to like it. it. I think it is a different vibe than quality. I, I love them both, right? Because they're FDA regulated from that perspective. So, but I, I like how everything comes together and regulatory. So your quality comes, your, your engineering and research, your drug discovery, marketing, development, commercialization activities, manufacturing, all those come together in that dossier. And when I was in quality, that's where I started to become interested in public health. Because before that, I was really a numbers person, I think, and looked at things very black and white. I mean, when we're working in quality, we are looking to standardize, understand measurement error, reduce measurement error or error anyways, any kind of error, make things very efficient so that we have a uniform quality product that meets specs all time, all the time. And we put in monitors to detect any kind of uh, movement from that so that we can start to address that before anything gets out of hand. So being proactive is always the way to go. Mm. But I became very curious about why we were making a particular product. So much of it, I thought, how can the market support all of this? I mean, it's not even the only type of this product that we make. We make other brands, but why this? And I, I couldn't really get an answer to it, but eventually I did. But it got me interested in who uses this and how do they come to need this medical product? So going back to regulatory affairs and why I gravitated toward it is that it also, to me, encompasses that thought about why is it that we need to get this product on the market? And what is the story that we need to tell? I, I have a friend a colleague, she's CEO of three companies, Rosemary Christopher. And she says, facts tell, stories sell. And regulators are people. And we need to give them the facts of our product, efficacy and safety, performance. But we also need to, I think, tell the story of, of why that product you know, should be approved in that particular country or region because there are differing views of health and illness and the place of medicines 
or devices in that particular country or culture that I think we need to pay attention to in terms of presenting a dossier. So yeah, to answer the question, it's just that a diversity of disciplines come together in that regulatory dossier. And that attracted me to regulatory because I could be exposed to all of them. Yeah, I think one of the, because I've, I've, <clears throat> I've talked to some folks who are earlier on in their career, right? And it's sort of an ever-changing thing, but the advice that I've given, I don't know if it's good advice, but it it's that try to go into the role that you think is the most important. And that's different for everybody. Some people think design is the most important. Some people think I think quality is the most important. You, you know, you may... <clears throat> I could get talked into why regulatory is the most important. Some people think commercial is the most important, right? And so that's that's sort of the advice that I, I give slash have been given. I'm still kind of sold on quality for now, but, you know. I understand. Open. Quality yeah. rocks, you know. Rocks. There's no denying it. So, you know, you were, you were talking a little bit right now about social impact. And I hadn't really thought about that related to the filings. I mean, can you give maybe a... a a detailed, a more detailed example about something where there's a maybe a, cult, a cultural resistance to medicines or medical devices, or you know how that plays into submission. Well, or maybe I first, misunderstood. Right. One of the first things I learned about about you know cultural differences between in terms of like how we are in the United States, which is very much the I guess it's more like a biomedical model. You know, if your blood pressure goes too high, you give a medicine to lower it. And if it's too low, you give something to make it go higher. In other cultures, that that change, I just use that as an example, but you could go into much more complex, you know, disease states and kind of use the same, maybe thinking about it. But we handle it with technology and medicine. Yep. In other cultures, it might be a matter of, well, something changed in their social environment. So what are the social contributions and how do we make a society where the social aspect is not conducive to high blood pressure or low blood pressure? And in some cultures, maybe if a person has a certain disease state, it's kind of seen as a spiritual thing that, you know, their, their spiritual being, maybe they have to, to do some prayer or follow sort of the the religious guidelines of someone who is like a priest. So those are views that we in the United States, I don't know how many people really think about the social implications or spiritual implications first before saying, oh, you know, I, I might need some medication for that. Mm. So if you're a regulator in a, in a country, you know, you might have been raised right from infancy with those sorts of beliefs in play as well sure you study science and you you do a job that's very technical and scientific but at the end of the day we are all people and we all have our beliefs and not every belief system is is hinged on the biomedical model and i think that's something that we understand so how does that play into regulatory affairs i mean i think that it it plays a role in terms of even clinical trials and trying to get a diversity of people with their beliefs into those studies to understand how people are interacting. What are some of the things that they're saying? Because a lot of times clinical trials have 
surveys and the surveys are not all physical symptoms. They're not all, you know, what are the biomarkers saying? Some of them are, how do you feel psychologically, your anxiety, your depression, your feeling of empowerment, whatever those, those surveys are, what are the patient reported outcomes? What are the survey outcomes? And those are going to be something that, you know, people are going to respond to based on their belief system. Well, you know, those go into module five, those clinical studies and and the summary reports go into module five of, of the dossier. So I think that as well, when we recognize these other aspects to the human, right, to the human condition, biomedical, sociological, psychological, when we factor in the holistic human being in terms of product development, I think it does come across in the things that we do in that development, the questions we ask and the things that we put forward to regulators in terms of even negotiating, like we talked about a combination product pathway where there isn't really necessarily clarity on that. I I, I remember reading because I was looking at you you know some of the work that you did in your dissertation you were talking about the the biopsychosocial yes in comparison to the biomedical right can you maybe elaborate on that in this context Yeah it was important learning that I that I gained when I went to study the public health system in Cuba first I went in 2010 and then I went in 2015 I think that was instrumental in helping me understand because Cuba has a pretty good health outcomes for a country that's that's poorer, you know. A lot of times you see the more wealthy countries have better health outcomes than countries that are low middle income or lower income countries. But Cuba seems to defy that, you know, it's kind of a paradox, but they have this view that that health and illness are more than just the physiological parameters of the body and that the social world that you're surrounded in plays a large part and your mental health within that that society plays a role. So I learned about it there. And so in my, my dissertation, I was looking at, okay, if people have the choice to choose the way that they're going to have their medication administered because you could go to an infusion clinic or you can self-administer at home. And I learned from a marketing study, it was actually it was a presentation. It was based on a study that was done. Some people like to go to an infusion center and be there for hours because their social world revolves around that. They might have coffee, before or after they have their interactions with people who go there at the same time. And for them, it's a social event. At the same time, they may or may not want to be confronted with medical gear in their home. They would rather go to where the medical gear is and have their home free of the reminder of their disease state. Whereas other individuals, they prefer to have their supplies with them because they're busy. They want to be able to travel like other people, go on business trips like other people without this disease state. They don't mind having their their medical gear with them. In fact, it makes them feel like they have some control and a safety zone because if they need their medication, everything they have, they need for it is there, they have with them. Well, that's 
quite a diversity of ways of looking at really social, more social, psychosocial things. So I was looking at if people had a chance to choose the medication and the way it's delivered, they could make a switch. Did they score higher? And the depression, anxiety, and feeling of well-being of a survey that's given out, I think it's every year. So people could take that as many times. And I looked for the ones who took that survey who had switched medical products with a different type of delivery environment. So it was it was interesting to mix the, you know, the technical with the public health aspects and looking at the biopsychosocial model. So so we we I think in, in the US in particular, right? Mm-hmm. And I even <clears throat> when when I was in college, I did my senior design with Baxter. And I remember the the folks that were explaining to us the problem that we were trying to solve, just driving home this point about the importance of home health, right? Yes. Home health convenience and that. In in your in your study, did you find that there were more people who lean towards the home health convenience having control, or did you find more people leaning towards the separate social? I know I'm getting it right because a trained practitioner is giving it to me, that type of thing. I found no difference. In fact, I I want to be able to go back and look at that data so many years later and see, follow those particular patients who are in part of this registry. And see if anything's changed to see if there is actually one way, right? Let's say self-administration in the home is surpassing the infusion clinic. I'd be, or vice versa, or if they are still the same. I'm curious. And and so it wasn't overwhelmingly one way or the other. No, it wasn't. Interesting. That's so cool. Okay. Well, as, as we close now, what is a book that changed your life? You know, I think Temple Grandin's Thinking in Pictures. Oh. It it gave me insight into how people view the world differently. We don't all think the same. Even though we might have the same thoughts, we might not arrive at them the same way through the same methodology. Yeah, I actually, I've, I've had this conversation with my wife before, and she says that when she thinks, she actually thinks the words out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. and so she'll say like, she will, like, if she walks outside and it's cold, she will think the thought, it is cold outside today. You know, oh, whereas I walk outside and I'm like, cold, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so that's wow. cool. Thinking thinking in pictures by Temple Brandon. What is, what is something you're excited about? Oh, you know, I'm excited about just the next phase of where we will go with, with products that are really aimed at I would say helping, you know, because a cure is so, so difficult to attain, but helping people manage the best way that they can to have a feeling as much as they can, optimal health and well-being, like the alma-ata, right? Health and well-being that everyone has a right to attain that. And so if we can bring therapies, considering diversity of, of people and their background and what they they bring as people, right? From all over the globe, bringing this together and making products that really help the daily life and management of chronic disease states. Mm. Yeah, it, it's funny. I think as, as far as we've come, it still feels like there's a lot to do. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, Nidra, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Any final thoughts and how, how can people reach you? 
Oh, well, people can reach out certainly by LinkedIn messages and by email. I can make that available. Text message is good if it's by phone, <laughs> you know, because it's hard to tell which calls are spam or not. So, well, very good. Thank you so much, Nidra. Thank you. I appreciate it, Supi.